Father, we do worship you this morning for sending your son, Jesus. Um, I just love those lines, Lord, that who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? But that's exactly what you did. You knew exactly what needed to be done, and you finished it at Calvary. We thank you for your mercy, your kindness towards us. Lord, we pray that all of your power, all of your goodness, all of your grace, your favor would rest upon us this morning, Lord. We don't deserve it. That's the essence of it. But Jesus, you did it for your people. And we just pray that this morning, Lord, that you would do by your spirit what we cannot accomplish in our own strength or by our own power or our own will or our own effort, um, but that you would transform us again this morning more and more into the image of Christ. Thank you for your love for us. <clears throat> Thank you for this time together that we get to spend around your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. You guys can have a seat. Uh, we have a guest speaker with us this morning, Mr. Troy Zink. He is Alan and Monica's son. Most of you guys know them. Alan, Alan I was going to say Alan is our women's director. Alan is not our women's director. That would be his, his wife, Monica. That would be interesting. Um, the only bearded women's director, probably, and I need to let that go. Sorry, I could run with that for a while. Um, but Troy, you can come up. Troy just graduated this past May from Reformed Theological Seminary uh, down in Orlando. Uh, he and his wife, uh, Jackie, are here along with their two little girls. Cute little girls, by the way. Saw Thank them out you. in the lobby getting some donuts or something <laughs> earlier. Uh, Mays and Micah, I believe their names are. Uh, but Troy's going to bring the word for us this morning, and uh, we're privileged to have him here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, so as you get your Bibles and, um, or whatever your devices, we'll be in Exodus chapter 1. And thank you, Pastor Eric. It's, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, I first visited Mercy Hill when y'all were still meeting in Newgrounds, and so praise God for what he's done in and through the life of this body of believers. Um, and yes, most people know me as Alan or Monica's son here, um, and then elsewhere it's usually Maze and Micah's dad or Jackie's husband, um, but it is, it is uh, quite a privilege to be here this morning, so I thank you for the opportunity. Like I said, we'll be in Exodus chapter 1, um, and we'll read verses 8 through 22, but focusing specifically on verses 15 through 22 this morning. And I do, as we read this, and I know you've been going through a doctrine, or the doctrines, right? Listen for those doctrines coming out, right? I'm a, by trade, I'm a school teacher. I teach high school science, biology, and all that. So as a teacher, listen for those themes to come out in, in our passage this morning. God's sovereignty, Salvation, sinfulness, right, man, and God's providence through it all. So let's look again, Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, 
she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Why have you, uh, sorry, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives in and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrew shall, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, we look at your story of redemption, Lord, uh, may we see our place in that story. Lord, may we find ourselves in that story. Lord, may we be encouraged. May you strengthen our hands and our feet. Lord, let everything that is not of you fall to the wayside this morning. May you be exalted. May you be glorified. Amen. About 10 years ago, I lived in the Middle East, and uh, one night, which was pretty common, there was a group of us sitting around a table, and we were at the home of, of a gentleman originally from North Carolina, but it was people from all over the world, sitting there talking, sharing a meal. And so we were going around just asking how long each of us had been in this particular region, and you know, the answers ranged from one year to three year, until we got to the home of the gentleman we were in, the gentleman whose home we were in, and he said, I've been in the Middle East for 50 years. And we all were kind of shocked. He had been in the Middle East longer than any of us had been alive. He moved there with his wife in the 1960s and never left. Even after his wife passed away, he stayed there pastoring, discipling, mentoring, specifically young men, and just being hospitable to people for nearly five decades. God's redemptive story is filled with people like Pastor Bill Grossman, whom you've never probably heard of. The Rebecca Prottons, the George Lyles, the Francis and Charlotte Grimkes, the Lemuel Haynes, the, the Wang Ming Daos, and the countless other faithful servants whom you may know personally who have been a faithful part of God, God's redemptive story that kind of exists on the margins. They're not front and center, but they are faithful day in and day out in the work of the Lord. Our passage in Exodus today tells us the story of how God created a nation from a people who existed on the margins. Slavery in Egypt served as the birthplace for the people of God. And as we gather here today as the people of God, this is also our origin story. Right, it is God calling a people out of sin, of slavery, into the freedom to worship him as God. And that theme continues throughout the entirety of Scripture, on through Acts. And we see it kind of almost replayed in Acts chapter 4, where Paul and the other, or sorry, Peter and the other disciples are preaching amidst persecution and hardship. And what's happening the Spirit is alive and well and working and bringing people to faith in Christ. And in our passage this morning, despite opposition, God is working to create a people for himself. Now I'll say this too. And I, heard, I feel like I have the liberty to say this because I heard Eric say it a few weeks ago. Um, asking for, for people to respond to what God is saying in his word. Right? We can interact here this morning, I'm happy with, with uh, you talking to me a little bit. Um, as, as the Spirit leads, I always tell my students that um, I enjoy it 
when I hear from you too. This is interactive. It's not about me or whoever's standing up here or you. It's about experiencing the holy God and coming into his presence. And that's what God's trying to do here. He's trying to take people to bring them into his presence that he may dwell with them. And as we see throughout redemptive history, throughout the scriptures, it's ordinary people on the margins who God uses to accomplish his purposes. And the first part of Exodus 1, Moses, our author of Exodus, wraps up the generation of Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. Right, That would be verses kind of 1 through, through 7 in chapter 1. And then in verses 7 through 14, we get a big picture summary of kind of how it's going. For the people of God in Egypt since that generation died. We see the people are growing in strength and in number in verses 7 and 12. Despite a new and oppressive Pharaoh who has forgotten Joseph in verse 8. Now he didn't forget Joseph as if he didn't know who he was. He forgot what blessing God brought through Joseph and his family. And instead of seeing Joseph and his family as a blessing to the land, he saw them as a curse. And right, go back to, and, and I think you all a few months ago went through the life of Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Right, and, and this Pharaoh forgot what the blessing of Joseph was. And now we see abusive treatment as they are viewed as threats, right? We see slavery, we see infanticide and, and the killing of male sons and choosing sons because he's militarily afraid that they're going to rise up against him and leave and fight. And then in the passages we focus on this morning, verses 15 through 21, Moses includes this brief story. He slows down. It's big picture early on. And then slows down and talks about two midwives, Shifra and Pua. Two people who existed on the margins. And Moses is telling us here, slow down. For the rest of redemptive history, remember these two women. Remember what God is doing through these two women. Pay attention to their life. Pay attention to their actions. Pay attention to their faith and trust in God. And as we look at the role of Shifra and Pua this morning as midwives in God's story of redemption, I want us to faithfully embrace that role as the midwife or a person on the margin in God's redemptive story. What does it mean for us today to be midwives for the kingdom of God? Well, look at two, two things I think we can, can pull from this text. The first thing is midwives in God's redemptive story are known by God. They are known by God. And this first point may actually seem rather obvious or simplistic. Right? Look at chapter, or verse 15 here. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, who is the most powerful person in this story? From our cultural context here, well, it would be the Pharaoh of Egypt. The pharaoh e Egypt, who assumed a godlike role in society, was a powerful person. But who is known by name, by God, Shifra and Pua? Pharaoh is nameless. In fact, scholars don't even know what pharaoh that is. You can read many kind of different scholarly texts, and they won't quite, they'll, they'll kind of handle it very graciously because they're not 100% sure who it is. 
in God's redemptive story, we're left with the names of Shifra and Pua. As God-fearing examples of faith and a Pharaoh left unknown. God in his infinite wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit left out, and this is why some people do struggle, right, with the scripture. God in his wisdom left out what others would call the main character, Pharaoh. He's gone. He's nameless in the story. And we focus on these people on the margins, now, there's actually debate even to who Shifra and Pua are. Their names are Hebrew, and the passage says in verse 15, they're Hebrew midwives. And that could also be translated as midwives to the Hebrews, meaning they were serving the Hebrew women. Or they were actually Hebrews who were midwives. Right, and the fact that Pharaoh is speaking directly to these two may may indicate they actually had a very fairly prominent position in charge of other midwives in Egypt, and thus they may be Egyptian. So you'll see again if you read that some will argue as these two midwives were high-ranking Egyptian officials, others, other commentators will say that they're actually lowly Hebrew midwives. And then sometimes when the Bible's clear, we've got to ask ourselves, why is it not clear? The story isn't clear about their social status or national identity. It's actually about them being known by God. It's why Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What defines them is not their national identity or their status. Yes, those are characteristics, but they're subsumed first and foremost by being known by God. We have a lot of conversations about identity today, and you may actually hear questions about how do you identify in our culture. And it's easy to kind of maybe disregard that question as something for others to answer. And we kind of distance ourselves from that. But if I limit my identity to the fact that I'm a white, Christian, heterosexual male, then I'm missing the point here. That question actually needs to be reframed. Not how do I identify, but what do I identify in what in what do I find my identity? Those characteristics can describe me, but they also can become idolatrous. Take Christianity, for example. Right? We can say, I identify as a Christian, and if you say you are identifying as a Christian, therefore you must find your identity in Christ. And that radically reshapes everything in our life. What defines me is Christ. Other things may describe me, but what define me must be Christ. His righteousness through his life, his death, his resurrection, he makes me right before God. Pharaoh found his identity in his position as Pharaoh of Egypt. And he oppressed those who did not have his characteristics. Pharaoh's status and role made him known to the world, but not to God. If we root our identity in anything other than Christ, we are at risk of intentionally or unintentionally discriminating against, harming, hurting all those who don't share the same characteristics as us. And like Pharaoh, 
We may be known to others, but not known to God. But it is in and through Christ we see Shifra and Pua, right, looking forward to Christ, fearing God, who show a compassion to people. In Genesis chapter 11, we read about the story of Babel, a people who seek to make a name for themselves by building a tower to heaven. And God ironically comes down. He confuses the languages. He scatters the people. But you know what he does in Genesis chapter 12? He calls Abram out of Ur and he says, I will make a name for you. I will make you great among the nations. The midwives in our story and the people in the margins who faithfully serve God have said, I will allow God to make a name for me. I don't need to make a name for myself. And God shames the Pharaoh with that act of naming Pua and Shifra and leaving him nameless. And again, this is this what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in God. Allowing ourselves to be known by God in that manner is humbling because it's accepting these truths. That regardless of what status or position you hold, you're always a person on the margins in this earth. It means allowing Christ to deal with all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt. It takes vulnerability and strength But the goal of our salvation is not to be like Pharaoh or like the people at Babel. It's not to be wise, noble, or powerful by worldly standards. Those things may happen, but that's not the goal. It's to be found faithful regardless of where we're at. It is to be found faithful. In God's story of redemption, he calls those on the margins, the midwife, the ones overlooked. God delights in them, and God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. And in that humility, we must constantly ask ourselves, whose kingdom are we trying to birth? Whose kingdom are you trying to birth? Whose kingdom am I trying to birth? Whose dream am I trying to live out? We pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane prays, your will be done. Is that the kingdom we're trying to birth? And midwives kind of metaphorically represent that. They're not trying to birth their own baby. They are trying to bring somebody else's into the world. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Carl Ellis, who says, what God builds, God sustains. What man builds, man sustains. We can't sustain anything because we too, like Adam, will return to the dust. But God is eternal, and what God builds, God will sustain. If we build our name or identity in anything other than Christ, we will be forgotten.
not known by the only one who can save us and call us by name. The only one whose affirmation actually really matters. And that's hard because we desire to be affirmed. We desire to be accepted. We desire to be loved in this world. And that is okay. But we've got to root that in Christ. We have to be like Shifra and Pua. And in the face of all of that, allow God to name them, to give them their identity, to boast in and fear God alone. And this actually leads us to our second point. If our first point is, right, midwives or people on the margins in God's redemptive story are known by God. Number two, midwives in God's redemptive story fear God. Midwives in God's redemptive story fear God. The entire passage we read this morning is full of fear. Right? Pharaoh fears the Hebrews. The people of Egypt fear the Hebrews. I think it's fairly safe to imagine in the context that the Hebrews feared the Egyptians with all the policy and legislation that was coming their way from Pharaoh. But if we look at verse 17, Shifra and Pua fear God. They don't fear the Hebrews. They don't fear the Egyptians. They don't fear any other nations. They fear God. And fear of God, if we remember from the book of Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom, as we unpack it, can mean a couple different things. Skillful living and understanding, especially in regards to navigating life and morality. And I think we see that clearly evidenced in this passage. The fear of God actually sets the framework for their civil disobedience. It's not as if Shifra and Pua had no fear at all of what was going on around them or if they were unaware, but they possessed a wisdom that said their fear in God was greater than all of their fears. Notice, they are the only ones mentioned who resisted Pharaoh. We just kind of skimmed through it, but Pharaoh sets lots of people in charge to abuse and inflict harm to the Hebrews. He sets taskmasters in charge of all of them. None of them do this. They're not mentioned by name. Shifra and Pua are the only ones because they feared God. My kids have been recently introduced to the Franklin books. Remember Franklin the Turtle? Yeah, Franklin the Turtle. Um, and one of the stories, Franklin goes to the hospital. Uh, Franklin cracks his shell, and everybody around Franklin is, is kind of cheering him on, like, Franklin, you're so brave. You're doing such a great job, Franklin, um, and admiring him. And then Franklin's in the hospital. He's about ready to get his x-ray, and he, he breaks down in the story. He starts crying, and the doctor comes up and says, well, Franklin, what's going on? He goes, I'm scared because once the x-ray is taken, everybody will see that I'm actually really afraid inside. And the doctor comforts Franklin and says, no, no, no. That's not, that's not what this machine does. And it's not that you're not going to be afraid. It's that you do the right thing even though you're afraid. Shifra and Pua know they're committing treason against Pharaoh. Right? A Pharaoh who has no problem enslaving an entire uh, ethnicity of people and killing their kids. He's got no problems doing that. And they are opposing him. The fear is real, but their fear of God is what defines and characterizes them. It trumps all their fears, and they rebel. 
And but because the midwives feared God, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And this fear of God that, that these midwives demonstrated, notice the theme throughout the rest of biblical history. The very next chapters in these books, right? Exodus 2, Moses' mom opposes the king and puts Moses in a basket in the Nile. Rahab in Joshua 2 opposes Jericho, hides the spies, right? All in that story, all of Jericho knows what's happened in the Exodus, and they're all afraid, and Rahab's fear leads to faithful obedience and brings salvation to her house. Or what about Hadassah, Queen Esther, who stands up to Xerxes when her people are threatened with annihilation? Or what about Daniel praying in opposition to King Darius's ordinance to worship only his idol? Or what about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? who defy King Nebuchadnezzar. We can go throughout Scripture. Paul does this, appealing to his Roman citizenship in defiance. John the Baptist, defiant in prison, calling out sin. Right? It sets a precedent throughout the entire Scripture for some of the most powerful regimes this world's ever known, fearing God is better. Fearing God trumps fear of man, even in the most powerful regimes. It's why it's repeated in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. I rem- you're always grateful when your kids surprise you in, in such pleasant and glorious ways by the grace of God. And you remember the story of, of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and they say to the king, right, you can throw us in the furnace. We may live, we may not. Doesn't matter. We're not bowing before the king. And it was a couple months ago. My, my daughter was praying. She was just praying for health. And she goes, God, we pray that you would heal us. But even if you don't, we still love you. Praise God, right, for the prayer of a child. And, and um, if you've got kids, I, I, I trust that you've experienced things like that where kids just come and, and humble you. Like, man, to pray like that kid, to, to face mankind with that kind of, God, even if this doesn't happen, we still love you because you're good. Because you're good. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, and it's hard, this is why Scripture reminds us, fearing man is easy, fearing God is not always the easiest, right? We see people, we want to be accepted and affirmed. And if we look at the brief survey of Scripture, we see Psalm 27, verses 1 and 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, I will be confident. Psalm 56. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid what can man or what can flesh do to me. Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will fear not what can man do to me. And Hebrews 13, 6 quotes Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or Matthew 10. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul. And this is one of the primary lessons these midwives and the people on the margins teach us about trusting and following God. Pharaoh, the man who believed he was a God, was doing his worst to the people. And God is still prevailing through the faithfulness of Shifra and Pua. Satan did his worst to Jesus on the cross. And because Jesus was faithful in every aspect, he still triumphed. People on the margins of society know or have better experience of what the worst of mankind can actually be. And I think that makes them uniquely situated to be messengers of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I've seen what man can do. And I still know God is better. I still know God is good. In some of the countries overseas where persecution is is rampant and the highest, one of the requirements uh, to be a pastor in one of these countries is actually to have been arrested. You've had to be arrested. And, and God is, is doing a mighty work saving people in prisons. And do you know why being a criminal is actually good for them? Right? They know how to navigate the system. They've experienced the least. They've experienced the worst of what mankind can do. And former criminals, because they know how to navigate through hostile territory as a marginalized and dehumanized person, actually make good carriers and good witnesses to the glory of God in hostile places. But isn't this what Paul did? Paul was a terrorist of the church. And God saved him in a miraculous way. And he pens much of our New Testament. When we embrace the fear of God as a people on the margins, we proclaim that all we have is Christ. And Christ is our life. And in that position, we see God's goodness towards us and through us. Look at verse 21 of our passage. Because the midwives... Feared God, he gave them families. The fear of God produces fruitfulness. Right, a sign of God's kindness and goodness towards the people of Israel was the, was the gift of children, right? It stems from the garden. It's promised throughout the covenants, right? The gift of children. As we move throughout redemptive history into the New Testament, the age of the Spirit is no longer physical offspring, although that is still a blessing of the Lord. It is spiritual offspring, which is why you all focus so much on discipleship. It is creating spiritually mature people and children. And so we see here that in God's favor, he gives the midwives a family. He gives them children. That fear then was evidenced of faith, a faith that only preserved the life in people bearing the image of God, but it produced life in their own lives. A faith that rightly fears God will produce and preserve both physical and spiritual life. Now notice the back and forth between our midwives, Shifra and Pua, and Pharaoh in verses 18 and 19. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives say to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Pharaoh questions, Why have they done this? And their response is, We didn't do anything. We weren't even there. 
Children were born before we arrived. Now, I'll admit, there's debate over this passage whether the midwives are being totally honest or they're doing something else. And I actually think the midwives are actually being very, very uh, discerning here. And, and this would be my take, but note it's debated. Right? Pharaoh is trying to separate the Hebrews from the Egyptians. Right? He is creating the chasm. And that's the cause of his fear, actually. We're, we're scared of them. So he further separates them from the people of Egypt. What do the midwives do? They play right into that fear. Well, if you're scared about how strong their sons are going to be, the women are even stronger and they're given birth. Right? Which is probably why he actually doesn't even punish them or do anything. We don't see any kind of consequences. It's almost like they're, they're mocking his irrational fear. And the Hebrews are so different, they don't even need midwives. We don't even do anything. We're, we're actually, we don't even get to them before the kids are born. And this is the beauty of the sovereignty of God over the lives of his people. Right? In Shifra and Pua's disobedience, civil disobedience, we see that lives are spared. And so, were they responsible for the growth of the Hebrew population? Yeah, they were. They kept people alive. They were accountable for their God-fearing actions. And God rewards them for that. Right, we see that in verses 20 and 21, right? God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. But who was ultimately responsible for the growth and preservation of the life of the people of God? Well, God was. His actions don't negate Shifra or Pua, Pua. But God determined to work through these two ladies to bring about his good purposes and the life of the people of Israel. How is God trying to work in and through us to accomplish his purpose in our areas of influence. Shifra and Pua were midwives. They obeyed God. They feared God. They brought his kingdom to bear as midwives. What are you? What am I? I'm a school teacher, right? I have that responsibility. How am I bringing forth the kingdom every day in the classroom? What would it look like for us to commit that to prayer? How would you delight to work in and through me, God? I think kind of a framework that can help us is notice that Shifra and Pua's fear of God brings life and peace to the most vulnerable around us. Pharaoh's fear of man brings blame, oppression, and violence. What would it look like for us to bring life, healing, and compassion to our neighbors? Maybe we are the ones in need of Life, healing, and compassion. And we all are in so many ways. We, we fall on both sides. We're vulnerable in need of healing and compassion. What would it look like for someone to do that to us? And what would it look like for someone to do that to someone else? For us to do that for someone else? How can we show mercy to our neighbors? And what would it look like for us to receive mercy? How can we decrease so Christ can increase? We all have the tendency, every single one of us, to be selfish and self-seeking. Right? That's our bent, in towards ourselves. But the midwives and the people on the margins in God's redemptive story exemplify that it's about the kingdom of God being made manifest 
in their own hearts, in our own homes, in our workplaces, in the lives of those around us, in our communities, and in our world. Karen Ellis, the founder of the Edmondson Center, studied there at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, uh, author, professor, frequent speaker, um, and and, uh, researcher for the persecuted church, wrote uh, this on her Twitter account a couple weeks ago. It caught my attention. She wrote, when we, do, when we pursue biblical justice, we proclaim to a watching world that there's a better day coming. Shifra and Pua were pursuing biblical justice and exemplify the, throughout the history of the people of God that a better day is coming. The original Hebrew slave was Joseph. And Joseph rose to power and he, he, through his work, saved not only Egypt, but saved so many lives around there, including his own family, through his work as second in command in the nation. And in the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, 24 through 25, and remember Joseph, second most powerful man, just below Pharaoh. And contrast Joseph's words to Pharaoh that we read in the story. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph brought justice. He fed the hungry. In the land that was not his own, rose to second in command, and he said, a better day is coming. A day that God had promised, in a place that God had promised, in the presence of that God. Pharaoh didn't know about that better day, nor the pharaohs after him. This pharaoh would die. New pharaohs would rise up. They would only know about today. Which is why they kept separating the Hebrews from the Egyptians. Threatening them with death, drowning, and enslavement. But a day was coming when God will separate his people. And God did separate his people. Out of the Nile River, he brought a savior in Moses. The very river the Pharaoh sought to drown the kids in. A day was coming when God would separate the people of of Israel from the people of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And he would pass over those covered by the blood. But he visited the house of Pharaoh. A day was coming when the people of God would pass through the Red Sea And the armies of Pharaoh would drown. A better day was coming for the people of God then, and a better day is coming for the people of God now. And for those of us who are suffering, who have experienced hardship, who know what it's like to exist on the margin, whose faithfulness is not recognized or rewarded on this side of glory, a better day is coming. A better day is coming. Amen. We should look forward to that day. Because there's a better day for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. He's the mediator. He's the one on the margins, despised, rejected, torn asunder for our sake. He is the one who brings life in our souls, uniting us to our creator through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 speaks to this. All these Old, Testament's hero, Old Testament heroes of the faith, faith died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance, they saw and they greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on earth. 
where people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Shifra and Pua, as women on the margins, found their identity in God. They feared him in faith. Likewise, we ought to live as people on the margins who find their identity in God. People like Joseph, who although his second command was a person on the margins, Esther, Queen Esther, rose to half the kingdom in her command. Still a person in the margins. Your position and your power and your status don't define you. For we are strangers and sojourners on this earth. And for some of us, that is a good news hope that we have a better day coming. The suffering, the tears, the, 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 the hardships that we experience here, they're coming to an end. Because one day we'll be fully reconciled with our Savior. But until that day comes, in God's redemptive story, when we see that better day, that better country, we work and we wait expectantly. For when we will see God face to face, he will not be ashamed to be your God. And he will deal well with you because he's prepared a place for you. Let's pray. The worship team can come up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and your love. Thank you for your word. Lord, may we leave encouraged, strengthened, hopeful that you are a good God who goes before us, who went before us. And Lord, you didn't bring us this far to leave us. Amen.